0: Welcome to Intelligence Squared Business Weekly. I'm Connor Boyle. Any business starts with an idea, but what happens when that idea gets out of your head and becomes a reality? Perhaps now you have an employee, or maybe after a successful year, four or five. Well, what happens when you reach 100? Needless to say, a little bit of organisation is required. And that's the expertise of our guest today, Dr Naomi Stanford. Naomi is an expert on organisation design. She has worked with many large businesses to create more efficient and productive working models, including with British Airways, Marks & Spencer, and departments within the UK and US governments, too. She's also the author of several books, the latest of which is a revised edition of Designing Organizations, Why It Matters, and Ways to Do It Well, published in collaboration with The Economist. She joined author, financial specialist, and broadcaster Linda Yu to talk about it. Here's Linda with more.
1: Welcome to Intelligence Squared, Naomi. Now we must, of course, talk about the pandemic. How has it reshaped our understanding of how companies need to operate, particularly when it comes to the growing use of technology?
2: The pandemic, first of all, the shock of it in the UK, at least, and I think in many other countries, immediately required organisational leaders to think, what do we need to do right now? differently to manage our workforce and keep the workflow. And the in immediate response was this sort of great shock, I think, to a lot of people was, do we actually need to do half the things we're doing? What What is the kind of minimum that, we'll, that we can do to keep going? in the most flexible way recognizing that people are, are frightened they've got very many demands on them that are now not you know within the um, work environment and so on so that shock of what what do we need to do differently now i would like to see continue Um, because you can see some slippage back to how it was. I mean, we do have team. The other thing that I think made an immediate difference, and I haven't unfortunately seen so much um, talk about this now, is a recognition that the people in the workforce who are of most value are the people we least value. So people like uh, dustbin collectors, bus drivers, delivery drivers, retail people, warehouse workers, those nurses, obviously, doctors, those were the people who kept us going. And they're on very much lower pay scales, typically, and their working conditions are not half as good as office workers for the most part. And I notice uh, now that that um, that what do we place value on, that debate that we could design very differently, is not moving very highly up the agenda if at all. And the focus currently is on hybrid working for office workers. So now you've got a design kind of assumption potentially, that could, and I don't know if it will because I'm still watching it, result in a sort of two-tier system. We may value one more than the other, which would be very unfortunate because, in fact, it's the others who actually contribute at least as much, if not more. And those are all designable considerations. Working from home, that
1: is something that has changed with the pandemic, at least for a segment of office workers. In fact, in your book, you cite a study that over half of British workers surveyed were happier working from home, but more than half also said they were being stretched further than before. So I know you're watching this still. (laughs) What do you think will happen to the, the office as we know
2: it? Well, I think physical offices will begin to look very different. Kind of prior pandemic, one of the huge issues was if you were working from home and there was a face to face meeting going on, no one took any notice whatsoever of the people who were working from home, dialing in on a phone or a video conference, you know, they were just kind of invisible. Um, But now I think that that's something about the behaviour, the technologies has really highlighted different behaviours around that. And this is where the policies start to come into play, designing policies which are equitable for people, because some people find it a lot more difficult to work from home because they don't have the workspace, they don't have the equipment, um, you know, they've got conditions which are not conducive to working from home, and other people have. So some people feel very isolated working from home if they're in that lonely situation and would like the office. And I think we need to think very, very carefully about how we make our policies, our reward mechanisms, our performance incentives really work for everybody and not for clumps of people who we sort of stereotype in a sense.
1: About those online interactions, um, you write in the book that social networks, online interactions, they can help forge a healthy culture, but there can also be a dark side too. So how can organizations
2: design their culture with this rise of hybrid working? There's a wonderful phrase I came across the other week, technology moves ahead of culture. So the pandemic has introduced a much more technology-based set of interactions and organizational policies have not kept up with that because the way that people are using the technology is very, very different from the way they have used it in the past, essentially. And you can see the spillover in things like uh, WhatsApp, for example. And there's there have been some very interesting legal cases on bullying and harassment around WhatsApp groups and, and people being excluded and what have you from groups. And the ways of thinking about those technologies and how we're tracking people, and there's the whole huge other issue of tracking and surveillance and privacy and security and what have you are being investigated but I think they'll take a bit of time to seep into organizational change as it were around technology use and how you think of technology as not being IT but about a work process and how we're using it to do work is is rather a different mindset. I was
1: fascinated to read your description of um, Starling Bank just because along the lines of what you're describing they don't treat IT as a department. It is literally across the company, which of course makes, you know, given that they're a digital only bank,
2: (laughs) um, technology would be at the forefront of of that. Starling Bank is, is very interesting, I think. Because it is a digital online bank, You can't have a separate department. It has to be integrated. I'm sure there is a separate department doing the sort of technicalities of it, but as a mindset, the technology is the way we do our business, essentially. And and I think that's how organizations need to go. And in terms of the people who do organization design, the more you can get multidisciplinary teams on it, the better it is. So a lot of my work in the last few years has been with people who would normally or are badged as digital technologists, service designers, business enterprise architects, customer user experience people. They have very different skill sets because they're looking at technologies but they're not looking at the design of the organization. But once you mesh the t- the sets of different disciplines, and then if you can include legal advisors or financial um, experts, you can then get a much more robust design because it's pulling in people with very different skills. I want to focus a
1: bit on the Abilene paradox. So you write about, a group makes a decision to drive for several hours to have dinner in the town of Abilene, but when they return, it transpires that no one wanted to go, but no one individual was willing to say so. So you write, this is commonly seen in organizations And it results in a loss of motivation and productivity. So tell me about how this can be addressed in the describe, explain, suggest and come process.
2: Yes. And I've had this discussion quite recently, actually, with some leaders in a government department. um, Because the Abilene paradox works on an implied agreement, which people are unwilling to say they disagreed with. So the Abilene paradox is a sort of example of the power of group pressure stops people speaking out, or the power of a hierarchy stops people saying to a leader that they're wrong. And there's some very interesting research, and I was involved when I worked at British Airways, on pilot and first officer interactions in the cockpit of an aeroplane. A lot of aircraft accidents at that stage were caused because the, the officer wouldn't tell the pilot he was about to make an error. And you can see that in operating theatres as well. In any situation where you think someone is superior to you by hierarchy, usually, which is why I'm rather against hierarchies, it stops people speaking up um, because they fear, sometimes rightly, that they will be dismissed or their views aren't of value or whatever it is. And that, again, is a designable thing. Because interestingly, if you meet someone in the hierarchy in a non-work situation, say it was a running club, and you meet the CEO of Starling Bank at the running club, doing the five k or something, and you don't know that that person is a CEO of the Starling Bank, you're not. You're not. You're just going to see that person as a runner, not as a person to be kind of in a power position. Unless unless she's incredibly good at running and comes in first, you know, and then you might think, wow, that's a powerful runner. Going back to the Abilene paradox, someone could have said, we've all decided we want to go to this restaurant. Supposing one of us didn't want to go, how would we speak to each other about that? And they could open up that conversation. And you don't need to be challenging about it. It's a sort of question of probing? What if someone decided that it was too far to drive? How would we feel about going somewhere closer? So before you all plunge ahead, ask some exploratory questions. And those what ifs aren't very rarely properly explored in the organisation design work that I do. You know, what if there is a pandemic? What if that film Don't Look Up that was around at Christmas about the comet? You know, what if that happened? And People can laugh at that idea, but actually it happens more often than you think. What if there was no, uh, if the supply chain suddenly collapsed? What if a ship got stuck in the Suez Canal? They happen all the time. And the organization designs are not resilient enough to deal with them, which we've seen. A lot of organizations have collapsed in the pandemic. The ones that haven't collapsed are the ones that, were much more aware of what their external context is, and much more able to adjust very rapidly. And there's some really lovely examples of that. Um, that you know they go into what in I think in the book I call the adjacent possibilities. What is close to what we're doing that we can capitalize on. And you saw those lovely partnerships between manufacturers of cars and uh, and and another organization doing um, ventilated d- design and distribution and what have you and and that is a a response to an emergency but we couldn't be designing those sorts of things in that sort of Um, Let's stop and think, what if? What if we didn't do ventilators by ourselves? What if we did them with another organization? And the Abilene paradox could be solved potentially by asking those what if questions. Mm. That Netflix film, Don't Look Up, I think it ended up in The
1: Destruction of Earth. So I think it's very important to, uh, to ask these
2: That's questions. That's right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that as an organization design. No, I didn't love it being blown up. I love the interactions, which could have been – I was mentally redesigning all the interactions and the systems and processes all the way through because the, there you could see power coming into play, Performance issues coming into play, governance structures coming into play, the geopolitical situation coming into play. It, it's a it's a wonderful case study for organization design because you've got so many different players in it. You know, the you've also got the actual technicalities of which is actually happening of mining on asteroids. You know, and the and the sort of idea of who who is of value and what is of value in in our working lives. I, th- I thought it was—I thought it was a very, very interesting film.
1: Naomi, you—you've worked with. A fascinating range of companies in the private sector and in the public sector, uh, the UK government, the US government. So it'd be really interesting to hear how working in the public sector differs from the private sector.
2: So my government work has involved working for the federal government. I was t- just over two years with the General Services Administration, GSA, in a in a very large two-year piece of work, actually, moving from one office, head office building across the city to another building involving massive redesign, not just in the office space, but in the way people worked. Then when I came back to the UK, I've worked for four and a half years with with DWP and then moved from DWP to the Department for International Trade, which at the time was a fairly new department. And that is always fascinating, moving to a new department. And from the Department for International Trade, I moved to a small team in the Cabinet office, looking specifically at the larger departments, how they were organized or how they are organized. The public sector, particularly governments, and I worked for the US federal government and the, the you know, the main I was a civil servant. It's very, very political, not just with a kind of normal organizational politics. And that makes it very, very difficult to do sensible, long-term organization design, because you get people saying, but the minister says. And as we all know, and I have to be rather careful here, ministers come and go, sometimes very rapidly. So if we start to do what the minister says or what the minister wants, regardless of whether they have any expertise in whatever it is is they're minister of, then you are changing an, a kind of massive machine, and they call it the machinery of government, for something that has potentially a short life and is very, very disruptive and stops sensible long-term thinking. So, so that's, that's one aspect of it, is the, the politics, small p and kind of actual politics. But the other thing about it is the organization of, of the civil service is very well established, which makes it very, very difficult to change aspects of it. Because you know, one of the extraordinary things that I found about it was if you move from one, in the UK, this is, if you move from one UK government to another, you retain a certain amount as an individual, like your pension and rights and what have you. But you get a P45 from one department, you hand in your laptop, and then you move to the other department, you get a new laptop. You know, the the systems are not interactive enough. And that's very well recognized. But it's very, very difficult to start an organization from scratch. And in design, Um, terms, there's a thing called path dependency. How far can you deviate from the establishment that you've got? And that's, if you look at the government of Estonia, and I've talked to a couple of people, which is a, a new government, relatively speaking, that is established on a completely, utterly different basis from established governments like the US government and the UK government. And a new government is like a start-up organization. It has the potential to set itself up very, very differently. If you're working with an established organization, there is only a certain amount of kind of leeway, essentially, to make it different. You can't, that's why I'm very suspicious of the word transformation. You can change it, but you're you're not going to make Marx and Spencer into Amazon because Marx and Spencer has 150 years whatever it is of being a bricks and mortar organisation on the high street. It wasn't established as an online retailer. And that's where I think the questions around... Public sector and private sector are different because many private sector organisations are much swifter to move. They have much more capacity to change more rapidly. They're much more in charge of their own destiny if they choose to be. They don't always, and they don't see things coming, but some of them do. Netflix is an interesting example, although it seems to be wobbling a little bit now. It's moved very swiftly. I don't know if you remember Netflix in the early years where they sent us a, a cd through the post or um, whatever the the hard thing was that you then inserted into your tv and they've moved very very quickly and and well over the years since they started keeping pace with consumer interest and in fact shaping consumer interest why I think they're starting to wobble a bit now is because they're losing ground to some of the competitors and that's where the interesting thing about keep an eye on your challenges starts to come into play and a lot of people have entered similar fields to um, Netflix you've got you've got Disney plus and other streaming services so there's a lot lot more competition and a lot more room to be. ousted essentially and for them to keep going on their current trajectory, I think will be hard going, but I don't know, and that's one of the wonderful things about organization design. They may find the adjacent possibility or have a new idea, but I think it's mainly this month. You can see their share price is starting to dip, and there are some questions being asked about are they going to maintain their competitive edge, and will their customer base be maintained, particularly in the US. Um, And I think, you know, in the geopolitics of it all, again, that starts to come into play of where they're operating and what their markets are starting to look like. I don't know how they're going to sort of start to think differently about what they offer or if they need to. They're at this point of, I'm just curious at this point of, will they succeed into the next phase? Because you do see organizations go through phases and some manage to leap to the next phase and some sort of collapse in a heap. No,
1: indeed. I'm going to squeeze in a couple more questions before we run out of time. And just following on this theme, what have you found is the most common mistake organizations make?
2: Well, looking at the organization chart and thinking fiddling around with that makes a difference is the most common. Fix the structure last, not first. That's the most common. The, the other common mistake, again, I have to be a little bit careful here, is the leaders thinking they know what goes on in the organization. Because often the leaders mandate a change or say we want to change, and they actually don't have enough Detail of the day-to-day working of the organisation to know what ramifications and effects that's going to have. That is a very common mistake, and that is so easily solved by getting this a multidisciplinary team reflecting different, I'll call them grades, at all levels of people in the organisation. You know, an intern has as much insight into aspects of the organisation as anybody else. They may be junior to the leadership team. But that doesn't mean they don't know stuff. Um, And so valuing contributions from different areas of the organization would be helpful. But that is a mistake. People don't do that. So they, they mistake the leader's knowledge as being knowledgeable, which isn't, unfortunately, always the case. Obviously, they're knowledgeable about some things, but not about other things. They're not all knowing, as it were. So that's the second mistake. The third mistake is, is thinking that it's going to, A, be quick and non-disruptive, and B, that it's actually going to work. It's not known because you're working in very, very complex circumstances. It's very rarely a quick fix. And you can see that in mergers. And I've worked on merging some government departments. And years later, the, it's still rumbling on. It's not a quick fix because it's very, very, and it's very disruptive. And then things happen which interfere with it. So you may have a merger of two government departments or two private sector organizations, and then something happens externally, which renders that very difficult to maintain. And thinking that it, you're going to do a sort of plain sale from uh, beginning to end is also a mistake. If if we thought we need to pay attention all the time to see where to change direction, that would be better rather than thinking it's going to work. It's, it's better to have the hypothesis. It's not going to work, and how can we keep it working? So those are the three things I think are, are the most common I see: the, the the chart, the leaders thinking they know everything, and the um, thinking that it's going to be plain sailing. Because you it's not even in a small organization; it's very complex. So let's finish with some advice. What are some
1: ideas about what our listeners can do to better organize themselves, be it their businesses? their teams, or even their own personal capacity
2: in life. One thing I think that would be really helpful is to learn about complexity. And there, there are masses of writings and talk and what have you on complex environments. And there's a very interesting book by Sharon Varney that came out recently called Leadership in Complexity and Change, which it explains it. Organizations are very complex and they're constantly shifting. And thinking that they're simple doesn't work. And you may think, I don't want to learn about complexity because it's all academic and immaterial. But it isn't, and it's useful. And just to think this is more complex than we thought is helpful. And you can see it just in family dynamics. You know, if you're in a household and you're trying to decide where to go for dinner, for example, you've got five different points of view and 20 restaurant choices and three ways of traveling to it. That builds complexity complexity. And all you're doing is trying to get a dinner decision. And all organizations are massively more complex than that complexity. And so learning how you can, and it's back to the Abilene paradox, essentially, learning how you can navigate complexity in a way that is easy for people is is a very key skill that I think a lot of people would benefit from. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I find is also lacking a lot is what some people call the weak signals. The, the things that you can see might have an impact. Uh, and several years ago, I was reading about the scarcity of rare metals. And I was thinking, oh, that's interesting because semiconductors are dependent on those. And now we've got the semiconductor issue. And you can start to see what, what are the weak signals in all the patterns that we're exposed to every day that might be of interest. And again, when I worked for the American Red Cross at the beginning, of, I don't know if you remember that thing called Second Life. We used Second Life in the um, American Red Cross piece of work, which was 2008 or something. And Second Life was a precursor of what we now know, like today, is Facebook's metaverse type thing. It's a precursor. And people were very curious that I was suggesting let's use second life. But that was a weak signal then that is going to emerge much more strongly. What are we looking at? And where do we learn about weak signals? That's, a, that's the second thing. And, and the global trends. The global trend, the geopolitics right now are very, very hard. And I think that we need to pay massive attention to those because they're going to really upset organizations in my view, in the next couple of years, you can see all sorts of global trends which have the potential to tip organizations, supply chains, recruitment methods, blah, blah, blah. The third thing is understanding the organizational cultures. And when you were earlier question about designing a culture, an organization isn't one culture. And that is another mistake, I guess, to think that it is a is one culture. Because if you work for, like I worked for um, Pricewaterhouse, it's in 150 countries. Each Pricewaterhouse office is culturally different from each other. You can recognize aspects of it, but the cultures are different. And, and those have to be factored in. And then you have the professional cultures. The marketing teams are different from journalist teams. You know, they're, they're different. And that's and they use different language. And those cultures are very nuanced. And thinking that you can get an organizational culture is is very difficult. So start to notice the different cultures. That's the third thing. The fourth thing, which I think is challenge assumptions. Keep on challenging your assumptions. And the pandemic was brilliant at that. It challenged a lot of organizational assumptions, and we need to keep on doing that and be curious. Why are we doing it this way? What are we assuming about that? And those questions, which I have to say, are absolutely infuriating to leaders. They can't bear that sort of question of why are we doing it this way or what if this or what if that... But that ability to encourage people to challenge assumptions, to be curious is critical. And the fifth thing is really be sceptical about mantras like agile or one that I'm curious about now is the great resignation. You know, those things influence companies because they're out there, people are talking about them, but are they real? Be sceptical. Do we all need to go for business process re-engineering? Do we all need to go for lean or whatever the latest agile thing is? They're founded in not always tested ideas and leaping on a bandwagon. We don't all need to have the Spotify model, the challenging of assumptions, essentially.
1: Thank you very much, Naomi. I'm going to conclude with a quote from your book. You say, the future is unknowable though not unimaginable. And I think you've given us a sense of that with organization design and why it's so important. So thank you very much to Dr. Naomi Stanford.